Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, what is in the report that Nightwatch is sending back to Earth on you? Woof. What have you done that is suspicious or uh, politically inconvenient for Earth? Uh, I spent almost all of this past summer without mowing my lawn. I mean, have you? can you see me? I look like a... Fucking weird. I look like a goddamn hobo right now. I look <laughs> suspicious just on, on on first appraisal. I don't know. How much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the answer I'm, is... I don't even know where to begin with that. What was it? Three days, three days ago? Four days ago? Uh, I caught myself Googling... I don't even remember what it was. Something disastrous uh, for, the, for a research project. And I was like, "Boy, I hope the FBI doesn't isn't isn't reading my my internet stuff." You ever Googled? I swear, FBI, I'm researching just to make sure uh, that if the FBI is re- reading your your internet history, you know they 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 see that one too. As somebody who has written multiple novels which featured murderers and have also written a lot of smutty fanfic, um. I just hope my FBI agent has some interesting uh, tasting kicks. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Nightwatch, eat your heart out. Yeah, there you go. All right. We are covering two episodes today. These are episodes three and five of season three. If you're asking, wait, where's season four? Don't worry. We're not skipping it. We're saving it. It's a special one. So we're going to be setting that aside as a treat. <laughs> Podcaster tears will be available upon request. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can buy my tears online and you can pay for them. (laughs) (laughs) Podcaster tears. They're like uh, influencer bathwater. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't even know how to respond to that. All right. So these are going to be episodes three and five. A Day in the Strife and Voices of Authority. Jude, as we are getting to Jakar drama, take us away. Not just Jakar drama, but Franklin dunking. Uh, by any normal metric, this would be a home run for me. Uh, and it is. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm going to have my fun with this episode. Uh, but uh, I do want to put a brief content warning and disclaimer on this episode. Uh, this episode is where we first begin to really get some traction on Franklin's stim addiction. I am a recovering addict. Uh I plan on making a lot of jokes at Franklin's expense in this episode, but I want to make it clear that I have a personal and serious stake in the way that this show handles the subject of his addiction. Uh, I respect that the way they do it, despite the fact that they staple this really excellent plot to a bag of rotten socks. So, yeah, there you go. I will try and balance these twin directions that my uh, brain takes us. Okay, 
Our episode opens with Ivanova and the captain meeting with the transport pilots. As a result of new regulations, they are going to be looking at delays or new fees. One particular pilot with a very good mustache and a pipe weapon I really can't imagine he could have gotten through security into that meeting shouts at Sheridan to come down and talk to him without a gun because he's a coward. Uh, his accent is preposterous, and I'm not remotely making it sound dumber than it is. Uh, Sheridan takes a gun from a guard and goes down to the loudmouth and sticks the gun in the front of his biker vest and challenges him to go for it, like some sort of scene out of Gunsmoke. Predictably, Mustachio backs down. Sheridan then ends the meeting and reveals that he had pocketed the gun's energy cap, so he was never under any threat. He's a sneaky boy. Ivanova looks like she's just run a mile, uh, and they are having some very nice banter when a Narn and a Malkatana bodyguard approach. He, the first Narn, introduces himself as Counselor Patain, I mean Nafar, and the who is the replacement ambassador for Jakar. In Sheridan's office, Nafar makes his business very clear. He's there to send Jakar home and take control of the local Narn populace. The Centauri believe that Jakar is organizing armed resistance, true, and causing great trouble for the Centauri back home, also true. Sheridan seems to think that's good, because he's a good boy. But Nafar is the placating lapdog and just wants to give the Centauri what they want. Sheridan, thankfully, flatly refuses to hand over Jakar, again, because he's a good boy or help Nafar bring the local Narns under control. As Nafar leaves, Sheridan exchanges a meaningful glance with the Narn bodyguard. Does Delenn have competition? We're going to get to this. <laughs> the next scene is maybe the worst Londo scene we've had to date, which is saying something, because Londo's really had some doozies. Nafar has reported to Londo as the local representative of Centauri government, to ask for permission to start dealing with Jakar. We've seen Londo the petty politician, Londo the gambler, Londo the drunk, even Londo the casually cruel, and Londo the selfish warmonger. Uh, even Londo the racist. Nafar is a traitor to his kind, but it's clear he believes he's doing so to save his people. So when Londo asks him, before he will give him permission to go find Jakar, about the conditions on the planet, it is with nothing less than what I would call sociopathic malice that he asks if he would be safe walking on the streets. The remaining ones. Nafar replies very calmly. What about the work camps? The re-education centers? What about the executions? He finishes with cold glee. Do they continue apace? Nafar answers every query calmly, collected, but Londo is at his absolute ugliest. This is Londo the Nazi celebrating the final solution. And I don't throw those words out there casually, but that's exactly what's going on here. It's hard to see Londo the same after this. The only thing that would make it worse would be Veer, our precious boy, standing there to see it. No, wait, there he is in the background, looking like he's about to puke all over the set. Nafar's quiet dignity makes it that much worse. Um... And after he's gone, Veer demands to know if Londo's behavior was necessary. And Londo assures him that it was because of that dignity and that pride. It has to be crushed. 
Londo, frankly, sucks, and after this episode, it is hard to see him ever again not sucking. The scene just is, is awful to watch. Peter Jurassic's delivery of those lines is so sadistic. It, it, it leaves a real impression, especially when you're watching it, like, critically, as opposed yeah. to, like, just casually watching. But when you're watching it and thinking about it, you're like, oh, fuck. He's, like, teasing this guy about genocide. Ooh. That's intense. On to lighter subjects. Londo heads to the lens quarters, where he laments that things between them are awkward. The line has fucking zero empathy here, which is excellent. She has no interest in placating this war criminal motherfucker. And I'm just absolutely living for her cold shoulder here. She's utterly dismissive of his attempts to be anything less than formal. And she's about to throw him out the door when he says that it's not about when he's calls in a favor and he has to assure her that it's not for the Centauri or even for him. And it's for Veer. And you can see her interest peaked just a little tiny bit when he tells her it's for Veer. He wants to make Veer the new ambassador to Minbar. He wants him away from what has to be done. I think the idea here is you're supposed to see that little bit of Londo we've talked about, that little shining piece of Londo's uh, goodness shining through, his humanity or centaurianity. That makes him sound like he's got horse legs as well as tentacle dicks. Centaurity? I don't know. Uh, anyway, he's shipping Veer off to Minbar in some misguided attempt to save Veer from exposure to his own war crimes. But uh, no, Londo. Fuck off. You, this does not redeem him at all after that scene. It's too too soon after it. And uh, it, it just makes him seem like he's trying to uh, put away his conscience. Next, we find Sheridan at a bar meeting up with the Narn bodyguard. Delenn, you better keep an eye on your human. The Narn, who it transpires, is named Talon. Okay, guys, look, I appreciate that you have to name a lot of Narns, but Talon with a with a mall katana, really? I, uh, I honestly think this just makes it more. This makes him just even better romance novel material. <laughs> All right. Well, agree to disagree. I think it's dumb. Uh, says it's good to see him again. And suddenly, our hopes for a cross-species romance are dashed as we realize that this is the Narn that Sheridan saved from the Stribe. Although we don't know what happened in that room. Uh, we find out what he's been up to. And at the end, he says he has qualms about working with Nafar. But he is glad it has given him a chance to thank Sheridan for saving him. And that he owes him a debt of honor. Sheridan replies he doesn't know what Earth Force would think if he started showing up with a Narn bodyguard. Talon says, with a very charming smile, I will add that they would say that this is a man who will live to be 150. This scene is really cute. It's such they have a like, good scene. They have a nice little like chuckle and like he pats Talon on the back and they like sit there and drink their little like, I don't even know what they're, what they're drinking. Like it's like a tequila sunrise or something. Yeah. It's- Listen, we're going to get into this, but there is no way to read this heterosexually. It's a, it's a like, tee what would people say if I had a, a Narn bodyguard? I mean, look, yeah, I can't, I got nothing. There, I was like, I started doing this as a bit, like as a funny bit when I was writing the summary, but the, mo- like, I watched that scene and I was like, that's, there's a, there, there's some chemistry there. Like this set some ships sailing. There had to have been. 
I don't know, man. Anyway, uh, Delenn, just, you know, keep an eye on it. Nafar, hate this guy, finally finds Jakar and is immediately condescending to someone with a literal lifetime of service to the Narn people. Uh, he manages to put his foot in his mouth almost immediately and is forced to apologize when Jakar flies into a really, really charismatic fury over Nafar suggesting that Jakar is getting their people killed. This scene is real good. Um, Catalyst just kills the righteous indignation and fury that Jakar brings to bear on Nafar. Nafar tells him to bide his time, to wait, to lull them into a false sense of security. It seems like a very civil conversation until Nafar uh, pulls out his secret weapon and tells him that if he doesn't surrender and uh, help him take control of the resistance on B5, he will tell the local Narns that the Centauri will begin targeting their families on Narn because of Jakar. It's a super ugly moment. Uh, and you suddenly realize that Nafar is not as idealistic as he has previously portrayed himself. Is he perhaps nefarious? Uh, oh, not one but two shitty names in this episode. <laughs> Veer, apparently, is not thrilled about going to Minbar. Uh, although I feel like, I feel like in other circumstances... He would have, he, he totally would have been. I feel like Veer would have been a Minbari weeb in like not wartime. Like, I feel like that is a, a character trait we could have guessed he would have. Londo is pretty open about why he's sending Veer away. Uh, he clearly wants to protect him and he's pretty open about why that's why he's doing it. Uh, and also he wants to make Veer more attractive to women eventually. Um, <laughs> Not right this second, but like, you know, maybe someday the additional prestige will make him more, more appealing. Like, uh, like in half a season or so. Yeah. <laughs> Back with Nafar and Talon, oi, uh, they are walking through the halls when they are confronted by a group of Narns. Turns out Nafar's clever plan to blackmail Jakar with threats against the local populace's families has gone sideways. Surprise. Rather than making them turn on Jakar, they are furious with Nafar and accuse him of being Centauri on the inside. It's like having Pentium on the inside or Intel inside, except, you know, like a, a traitor. It's a little bit different. They say that he is there to break their souls where the Centauri had tried to break their bodies. Talon draws his sword when one of the, one of the Narns draws a knife behind Nafar and shit is about to get ugly when a gun comes out before Jakar rushes in. I can't do a Jakar voice. I'm not Justin. Uh, but have I led you no better than this? Have I taught you no better than this? This scene is so good. Jakar is, this is Jakar at his purest. And it's laying such good groundwork for him too. Yes, yes, uh, yes. He would. Ra he says he will go home rather than let the Narn be, be corrupted by the conflict over him. And this moment, apparently Justin already knows what's going to happen with Jakar, so I don't really have to <laughs> headphones them over this. But like, you can see how this would be a moment that becomes idealized. Yeah. You know? Like, mm -hmm. it's it's extremely good. And sure enough, Jakar says he, J Jakar follows through. The next time we see him, he is packing up in the sexy chess piece 
when Garibaldi comes to see him. And this is how good Jakar is. We like Garibaldi in this scene. I do. <laughs> and I assume that other people do. Yeah. Garibaldi doesn't want him to leave and points out rather rather unnecessarily, because Jakar is not an idiot like Garibaldi is, that if he goes home, they're going to kill him. And it's like, well, no shit, man. Like, he's a freedom fighter. He's been fighting in the fucking Centauri his whole life. Of course they're going to kill him. He knows that. But it's coming from a place of sentiment. And you really like Garibaldi in this scene because Garibaldi is everybody in this scene. That's how pure Jakar is, that he can make Garibaldi likable in this scene. He says, yeah, buddy, I know that if I go back, they're going to kill me. But if that's how it's got to be, that's how it's got to be. Uh, this scene is beautiful. It, it's just, it's such a great interaction between these two characters that have this weird relationship. And I'll say that it's, its uh, even though we're putting off passing through Gethsemane until the next recording, it's wild that these two are back to back. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. For sure. We get to Nafar, and he's speaking to the Narns, and boy, it's going great. Uh, the crowd is literally snarling at him, and his own bodyguard claps back when he asks what could be more important than the safety of their families. He says one thing, and we cut away, and we finally get Jakar as he prepares to leave. He's on his way when he's confronted by a Narn, Jadok, who tells him that he is valued and needed on B5. Jakar steps around Jadok and tells him that, you know, this is what he must do for the sake of their families and finds two more Narns who repeat Jadok's message. He steps around them as well and finds literally all the Narns on the station waiting for him in this hallway. What about your families, he asks. Is there anything more important than their safety? Yes, one replies. Their freedom. And they and their families all understand it because Jakar taught them. And now I'm crying because I just love Jakar, you guys. It's so good. This scene is so good. Jakar is so pure. And he's just the, the, the scene of all these Narns there who have learned, who have been, I mean, radicalized is kind of a word that has a, a certain connotation these days that is not exactly positive. <laughs> Yeah. But Jakar, they have learned the value of freedom and what it what that means. And he is their teacher in a in like a capital T way. You know what I'm saying? And they won't let him go. It's just it's too good. Um, I can't. I just can't. And even Talon has decided to abandon Nafar and join the B5 Narns. He draws his sword, which angers Jakar. Because Jakar's like, are we, are we back to this? Are you going to draw your sword on me? And he says, I carry my sword in my hand. You carry yours in your heart and in your mind. And I'm, it's just the best part. It's just the best, most succinct summary of what makes Jakar such a profoundly good character. And and you're you're um, skipping the rest of that quote, which is what really clinches it for me. Is that Talon goes on to say that gives you a two to one advantage over me? Uh, be fair, Jakar. Yeah, it's so good. I'm I'm just slain at how good this this stupid show is sometimes when it comes to Jakar. Um, <laughs> and that's the end of our one of our three fucking plot lines in this goddamn episode. Uh, but the other two go faster, I promise. The C plot, and I'm doing the C plot before the B plot because the B plot depends on it. 
Uh, in the C plot, a weird, ugly alien pine cone flies up to the station and starts broadcasting the message. Hey, I've got a bunch of technology. Don't you just want it? Isn't that good for you? Um, and Kef not Keffer, uh, Corwin, who gets a name this episode. Good for you, buddy. He's like, whoa, this is real cool. We should, like, decipher this. And they start talking to Earth and getting all these answers and... Everybody's rushing around trying to get all the answers to the, all these questions. But when they begin answering the questions, it sets off a timer that they have 24 hours to get all these answers or it's going to set off an explosion of, what, 500,000 megatons? It's going to blow the station into smithereens. Yeah. As they're translating all this, Ivanova wonders why the high fuck anybody would build such a thing. And Sheridan's like, well, maybe it's like an interstellar gardener weeding out the civilizations that are too dumb. Which seems like a kind of preposterous and maybe overly hopeful suggestion. But, okay. Um... As the episode goes on and they finally are getting more answers together and Corwin has some fun, good lines. And I feel bad that I'm glossing over this plot line that's completely fucking pointless and I have no idea why it was added because it just takes up space from the other two plot lines. But it does give Corwin some good material and the actor who, who plays him is very good at looking confused and scared of Ivanova, which I really like. <laughs> But finally, at the end, like with literally two minutes to go, Sheridan's like, hey, do you think these people who made this probe might have been a little untrustworthy? Maybe nefarious? <laughs> and he's like, maybe we should not do this. And so they send out a little robot. And uh, <laughs> robot number two, we should start keeping track. Robot number two drags the probe out, out into the middle of space and projects the answers out to the probe. And the probe is like, ha ha, fuck you, and blows up. And sure enough, that was the whole point. Godspeed, little buddy. Godspeed, little buddy. Rip. Okay. <laughs> Take a drink. All right. I'm almost done. I swear to Christ. I swear <laughs> to Jaquan. Uh, in the B-plot, we are beginning to address the fact that Franklin... Besides having dubious sexual and medical ethics, is also a junkie. He and Garibaldi, honestly the only other main character with questionable enough morals to be his friend, are in the officers' club drinking, and Franklin is barely awake enough while Garibaldi tells a hilarious story about that time he threatened a Burkiri. Ivanova shows up, and Franklin complains about his hours, and is about to go to bed when he gets called in to cover a shift. When he comes back from using the bathroom, He's wired like the top post on our cable porn and saunters off like a horny rooster to dance with the first woman of color we've seen since Franklin's last bout of dubious ethics. While Franklin <laughs> is being Franklin, Garibaldi is being Garibaldi. He tells Ivanova that he's committed a gross breach of privacy and security laws by looking at the captain's personnel file when he came aboard, bizarrely, and probably only to try and make the audience hate him a little bit less in this scene, Ivanova does not seem completely offended by this violation of the captain's and apparently her privacy when it's implied that he did the same thing with her file. Two things I want to point out in this scene before we move on. One, uh, Franklin had some real crazy eyes when he went up and asked that woman to dance. Uh, no sane woman would accept a random proposition from a guy with murder you in his basement eyes like that. Um, <laughs> I'm aware that I am not a woman. And so I have never been in that position, 
But one, this is not like a street corner where she would have felt like she had to do it to like for her own personal safety. It was a an officer's club. There were plenty of places she could have gone. I feel reasonably comfortable saying that she could have just said no and let crazy eyes move on to something else. Some people are dangerous. Anna, please tell please please tell me if I'm wrong that in in that circumstance would you have felt comfortable with the advances of of a man with crazy eyes like Franklin has in that scene cuz they're fucking crazy eyes cuz he's lit like a goddamn bonfire in that scene. Perhaps if I already knew him but then if i already knew him this is franklin we're talking about so no dice no, no dice, dice ever. okay i just i want to be sure because i again not a woman don't want to speak to an experience i don't have but he comes out of there clearly high as a goddamn kite and it's just like gotta get me some and it's just it's it, it's just it's just fucking weird second uh apparently ruffles exist in the future because there's a bowl of ruffles on the table and i think that's interesting that's a real, real <laughs> contrasting second thing you noted there. I just happened to notice there was a bowl of ruffles, and I think that's worth pointing out. When we next see Garibaldi and Franklin, the pig has invited the junkie to dinner. Uh, and Franklin is automatically suspicious, as a junkie would be anytime somebody invites them to a private dinner. Garibaldi, who we will see in a future app, apparently cannot get eggs, has apparently managed to get the fixings for cannoli, which seems suspicious, but whatever. He launches into what is an awkward but honestly not half bad attempt to reach out to somebody he knows has a problem because he has the same problem. Addiction is generally pretty poorly handled on TV. It was way worse in the 90s, the era of the very special episode. But confronting addicts is even worse. Like the episodes where addicts are confronted are almost always like intervention or like, you know, the famous Saved by the Bell caffeine pills episode like not a lot of shows made an effort to be anywhere near how it's what reality looks like and i don't know who in jms's life is an addict but he knows someone because this scene reads with a lot more authenticity uh than you normally see on tv there's a uh what i would call a jagged awkwardness to their conversation where they're bumping off each other as Garibaldi is trying to get close to the subject and just making a fucking hash of it because that's what you do. There's no good way to be like, Hey, by the way, are you an addict? Do you have a real problem? Like there's no way to gracefully do that. And Franklin goes immediately defensive and then is like, I don't have a problem. You have a problem, you fucking drunk. And that's that immediate like defensive counterattack maneuver is something that literally every addict has done when confronted. Uh, There's not an addict alive that has not given some version of Franklin's speech, Franklin's little like hostile counterattack there. Uh, myself included. So uh, I respect that JMS wrote a fairly authentic scene here. I don't know how it reads to other people, but to me, uh, it read as uncomfortable and awkward, which is how it probably should have been. Later in MedLab, once I got over, you know, in appreciating the writing and could get back to hating Franklin, 
Uh, we see Franklin trying to work on a patient he can't communicate with when Ivanova calls him about the ongoing probe-splosion emergency, I guess we can call it. Uh, he is angry, hostile, and frazzled. I wonder what's the matter. Oh, that's right. He promised Garibaldi that he had it under control, but he would cut back just to show Garibaldi that he didn't need the stims. You fucking liar. As his patient is wheeled off, he pulls open a drawer and stares longingly at a stim, like a pretty woman, uh, which he will treat with just as much respect. When we come back to MedLab several scenes later, as the C-plot has gotten even more tense, Franklin flips his shit at a doctor on the comm who has not given him all the answers he needs for the probe. Everyone in the lab stares awkwardly as he screams at this woman on the comm. In fairness, I don't think the woman on the comm really respected the gravity of the situation. She's yeah. like, well, I got three out of four questions. That's pretty good. And he's like, maybe you don't respect the fact that without all four, we're all going to die. But also, he does lose his shit completely. One of the other doctors is like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. Fuck off. And then he takes... And it's that he's losing his shit on top of all the other times recently that he's lost his shit, too. Yeah, it's definitely like a a peak hysteric moment. Uh, and then he does what, what one does in those situations, which is he, he takes a stim. After all the drama with the C-plot resolves, Garibaldi and Franklin are talking and... Garibaldi apologizes and says, I shouldn't have confronted you that way. That was maybe too much. If you say you've got it under control, I believe you and trust you. And it's a real good little moment for Garibaldi where he's trying to sort of reach out and bridge that gap and rebuild that trust. Uh, but Franklin's an addict and, you know, that's not going to work because he's not trustworthy anymore. And uh, Franklin lies to him and then Stone Cold lies to his face and tells him, Ah, uh, yeah. Ah, uh, you know what? That whole time I didn't take stims once, which is exactly how that works because addiction fucking sucks and makes you act like an asshole. So yeah, that's that's how the episode ends on that chipper note. That's a, kind of a roller coaster of a fucking episode uh, for me. Uh, I love the Jakar stuff. The addiction stuff is kind of a uh, intense, and I just really hate Franklin. Uh, so I resent having any empathy for his situation. I really do like Corwin also. And I feel bad that I don't care about the plot that, that he's finally getting some lines in, but I do respect that he gets to snark back at Ivanova and like no punishment <laughs> yeah. happens for him. Yeah. He like claps back in like a big old way and like nothing happens. I, I was think that blown is the point away. where it's like he he isn't accepted as a part of the show. Yeah. And like Ivanova you, glares at him, but you can tell that she loves it. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's how you know you're a respected part of the crew is when you can like snark back out of Vanova and you don't immediately get put in an airlock. <laughs> There's a great line in um in this episode where Ivanova chides Sheridan for being the eternal optimist. And yeah. Sheridan's response is, Well, it's anything to keep me from becoming you. <laughs> yeah. And then it's she like says, Did you hear that? And Corwin's like, I hear nothing. Um not stepping in between mom and dad while they fight. <laughs> yes, it's really good. I'm I'm really glad to get your ongoing opinions on the Franklin addiction plotline because that's that's always something that I've felt like, at least from my perspective, it seemed like they were handling that differently and better probably than most 
similar mm-hmm. storylines, especially of the era. But that's also something that I'm completely unqualified to actually assess. The specific thing that I will give uh, JMS credit for in the writing here is that in a very real way, there is no attempt in the narrative to demonize Franklin or portray him as like having any failing yeah. for this. That's a real good point. Uh, I think that's that's something you usually in shows there is people f- are depicted with addictions or suffering from that because of some failing or a moral deficiency or something. And Garibaldi is, is like just recognizes it as no, nah, Franklin's just been under a shit lately and he's a workaholic. I recognize those patterns because, oh boy, do I fall into those. And, like, it's not done of a, like, oh, I saw you shooting up in the bathroom. It's, I know the patterns that I, I, it's, it's, it's Garibaldi recognizing the patterns and reaching out. And there's something that's really good about just how badly Garibaldi handles it. Like, that feels very honest. I Mm -hmm. also, I also like, and this is something where, you know, it being Garibaldi makes me, you know, curse everything but i i really like that garibaldi also does not in any way push franklin away like when he doesn't get the response that he wanted like franklin has that defensive quip and garibaldi's like okay food's getting cold like you know it's you know he Mm -hmm. he doesn't he doesn't try to be like well you didn't you didn't immediately acquiesce to what I wanted from you. You are no longer my friend or anything like that, that he, yeah. he continues to be there for Franklin. Yeah. I have a, my head cannon. I, I don't, I mean, maybe it's in the comics or something, but I kind of suspect that Garibaldi was on the other side of that table at one point with uh, Sinclair and he's been there and that's, he's trying to play the Sinclair in that, scenario and that's partially why he's fucking it up so much like he's trying to to do it in a way that is not like his specialty but he's trying his best and i respect that and the way the scene is handled is really honest to me because like i i did not i never personally experienced this kind of like direct confrontation but more than you, you do have people that are, you know, you'll have somebody be like, do it like a check-in or something. And you, you have these awkward confrontations and questions every now and then, and you have these brush offs and things like that. And it's, it just reads very, very honest to me. Like I said, I don't, I could be totally wrong, but it, it very much reads to me like somebody in JMS's life is an addict and he's working from some, some experience here or either that or he knows someone who knows someone and was really listening uh, very, very openly when they talked about what it was, what it was like to deal with, you know, trying to help someone that was an addict. Oh, this is a point that I thought was really interesting. The Narn seems shocked that Talon would draw on another Narn. Uh, like the Minbari, it seems like the Narn on Narn violence is uncommon, mm-hmm. which is wild to me because it implies that like humans and Centauri are the only ones that get up to like 
interspecies murder on the reg, uh, which is saying something. And the Drazi, <laughs> I guess. But they seem to do it more for funsies than for, like, violence purposes. But I think it's more just, like, the maybe the Narn and the Minbari are two exceptions. Maybe. Like, the Minbari just have, like, a very, like... Apart from the warrior cast, who who mostly just get that out through xenophobic warfare, yeah, through xenophobic <laughs> warfare. Like Minbari are pretty like non-violent, yeah. Um, and the Narn, for example, I think the Narn are the Narn are in an interesting place culturally because they they essentially went from being a peaceful agrarian civilization that had been a peaceful agrarian civilization for about a thousand years to fighting against the centauri yeah yeah Fair. and there's there was no middle ground there yeah i definitely think there's like a camaraderie there where it's just like you don't narns don't kill narns yeah why would you kill a narn when you could kill a centauri <laughs> yeah first of all we get the return of the sexy chess piece oh yeah return of the sexy chess piece yes bless we also get another one of Sheridan's uh, orders executed with a with a fancy hand gesture. It's, it's his version of the the make it so. Yeah, the make it so. It's very awkward, and I love it. It's it's real bad. I get the feeling like maybe Box Lutner wasn't real fond of doing it because it, it it never <laughs> works. It never looks graceful. Yeah. Well, Drew just doing the summary. I just looked on Archive of Our Own. I don't think Archive of Our Own is the best tool I can use for this because the Babylon 5 fandom is much older than pretty much any repository of fan fiction that is still that exists. Was created. There's no way I can get like what that is, but I found 18 fix with Talon in it, like Talon tagged in it. Sadly, none of them are Talon shared. Uh, that's a, that a is fucking crime. Embarrassing. That's a crime. I'm legitimately offended by that. Well, uh, you know, one of one of you two will just have to go write it. So, yeah, I mean, I do want to say that it's like, ooh, like, like the entire thing is like Talon and Sheridan like share a glance in the meeting, and then like the next time you see them, like, sh- like Talon sits down next to him, and Sheridan just slides him a drink, and that is just and says, like, "I got your message." And it's just like the the, the easy yeah, intimacy of like, it. Yeah, I look. Yeah, I mean, it's I I can really easily like headcanon how I think this is. Um, lay it on like, me. I'm I want to hear. Like, it. I, I yeah, I want to hear this. So, so so my my thick for this because I'm a dumb gay bitch. Um, <laughs> is that like? Hold on, can we get a clean take of that for Zathras? <laughs> Because I am a dub gay bitch. Thank um, you. It, it is that Talon has has sincere and very romantic feelings for Sheridan. I do not think that Sheridan like necessarily reciprocates that totally. And like and and, and like that's something we get from that bar scene of like, yeah, you know, I've got an honor debt to you. And he's like, I don't know how I'd feel about having a darn bodyguard. And then Talon is just like everybody there would think you would live to be 150. And it's just like, he is like, yeah, I know, I'm all in. I will ditch this dude. I will ditch Nafar if you ask. Um, and, really but Sheridan good. is like, Sheridan is either like, I'm too straight for this, or I don't think Delette is good with this. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. 
somewhere somewhere in between those. Yeah, it, it's but but it's like I am going to live with the happy headcanon that to, or, or the the sad angsty headcanon is that Talon like definitely yearning. Yeah. Oh man. Ooh, uh, we have a shipping quarter of this. Usually we wow. only get to this in complete discography. <laughs> yeah, I I really love that scene. Uh I really love like everything about all the Narn shit in this episode, like just all of it. Uh, I love it so much. I'm completely, I'm not even going to dunk on his mall katana. I'm just going to let it go. <laughs> he's, he's cool enough to pull it off. Yeah. Talon's, Talon's pretty cool. He's got a dumb name and a dumb katana, but he, he makes it work. Oh, I had, I had a interesting JMS speaks bit from this that I pulled out, um, which is so apparently some of the Mimbari who are in that, that meeting, with Sheridan and the Dockers Guild are actually worker cast, which is like the first time we've actually seen worker cast, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the JMS Speaks said something about the that they carve their bone ridges differently, which indicates that the the patterns in their bone ridges are carved rather than being like a natural growth pattern unique to that individual. Which is wild. Yeah, that's wild and fascinating. Mm-hmm. And definitely definitely meshes with the fact that we see different ridge patterns for different castes and clans. It makes sense considering that the 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 clan choice is or the caste choice is not biological. They can be right. whatever caste they want to be. Right. But I I would be fascinated to see a like Mimbari child and what the bone ridge would look like on a mm-hmm. child or teen or something yeah. like that before before making that choice or is it you know like you go to the is it like going to the tattoo parlor like you go to the the bone ridge carving parlor is there some sort of like oh. ceremony behind it oh i was just picturing like lanier sitting at home watching okay what <laughs> What does Lanier watch while he's got, like, I'm picturing something roughly the size of, like, a French baguette, but it's like a nail file, and he's just like, he's just, like, filing his bone crest? I feel like you have to have somebody else do that. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, I mean, I can't can't properly dye the hair at the back of my head now that it's this long. So, like, how could somebody carve their bone crests in an intricate pattern? Yeah, like, like, if I want to, like, clip my own hair, like, I either have to accept that the back of my head is going to look gnarly, (laughs) or I just realize that it's not getting done because I don't know if anybody else is going to do it. Fair enough. I like unless unless Minbari are just like double jointed and flexible as hell and have amazing perception of looking in mirrors. I mean, I'm I'm willing to accept all of those. Be- Their whole civilization is crystals. Mm, yeah, I mean, most of the time, I think this is like a person, like this is a shared like like this is a shared like group thing, mm-hmm. or like or it's a place where like God, Minbari barbershops must be really boring. Like and that also has a question: Does it continue to grow? Too. It may not. Yeah, it may be a one and done thing. Minbari barbershops, though, might be like a wood. It might be like Home Depot. Like, like they use like a. (laughs) No, they probably use some like crystal doodad where they just like trace it with a crystal and then just dunk. 
just falls out. I think it would be cooler if they was like a belt sander, though. They got the guy's head down on the belt sander. <laughs> like like Hellboy. Yeah. Ancient tradition says we must use the belt sander. <laughs> the Dremel. The, the, yeah. the sacred Dremel. Yeah. It's, it's just a really interesting little tidbit of world building that I really wish was in the actual show rather than just a JMS Speaks. Yeah. But rip. That's about all I got on this episode. Uh, I appreciate it. That this episode is kind of a wild one tonally. Um, yeah. Not quite as wild as what we're about to do. <laughs> oh. uh, but that was mostly down to me. This one's all on Menachem Benetsky. Uh, so. All right. On that Ready note. Yeah. <laughs> Well, take us away. Yeah, so our next one here is episode five, uh, Voices of Authority. Um, again, written by JMS and directed by Menachem Benetsky, or however the hell you pronounce that. Um, I think that's correct. The the C-H seems like it might be uh, pronounced um, differently. Uh, so we, we start out with a gathering of the B-5 War Council. Dylan has a new idea for... Uh, gathering allies for the upcoming war. She wants to reach out to some of the first ones, um, which is the the term for ancient races like the Vorlons or Shadows. Um, and unlike those two, um, most have left the galaxy um, and gone beyond the rim or like probably ascended or something. Some sort of nonsense. Some of them seem like they're, there's evidence that some of them are still hanging around, and Delenn suspects that Drawl might be able to help. Uh, Hollow Drawl appears and explains that the Great Machine does indeed contain information and capabilities that might be useful for finding and communicating with the remaining First Ones. He and Sheridan make a date for Sheridan to go down to Epsilon 3 and try it out. Well, you know what they say about the best laid plans. Sheridan's jaunt to the planet is interrupted by this week's mystery guest. Uh, B5 is apparently getting a new political officer, uh, Julie Misante, from Fox News, um, the Ministry of Peace. She's here to make sure that Sheridan makes more politically astute decisions from now on. Uh, the two have dinner, and Musante reveals that Earth has solved all its social problems by redefining them and laying the blame on people who are, I quote, mentally unstable and unpatriotic. Hey, uh, Miss Musante, fuck off. That's what yeah. I have to say about you as a mentally unstable, unpatriotic person. You can just suck it, okay? <laughs> yeah, she is, she is the little worst. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of sucking it, she is extremely desperate to get into Sheridan's pants. He is not thrilled about this fact. Meanwhile, Ivanva has gone down to the planet in Sheridan's place. Drawl is at first um not not enthusiastic about this this swap in people, but um Ivanova wins him over by being a weirdo, which apparently appeals to Drawl. And his sense of humor. Drawl unplugs himself from the machine, um, dusts himself, and Ivanova hops in. Drawl guides her through using the machine to do this exploration routine. Um, she finds the path to the first ones and follows it to Sigma 957, previously seen on... What the fuck was the name of the episode? 
Mind War. Previously seen on Mind War. As she's about to come back, uh, she realizes that she is not alone. Whatever else is there has also noticed her. She narrowly breaks away from the whatever else's gaze and finds her way back to the path. Before she emerges, though, she sees a new image, a communication between then-Vice President Clark and Morden plotting Santiago's assassination. Drawl agrees to record that message, um, since it's the evidence that Sheridan and Ivanova and General Haig and such need against Clark. Before Ivanova heads out to the White Star to get to Sigma 957, she drops in via hologram to Sheridan's quarters to give him an update. Uh, And we get a scene as Sheridan is attempting to avoid Musante's advances and also speak to Ivanova without Musante noticing. Uh, I I feel like you maybe buried the lead here very slightly (laughs) in that in this scene, Musante is buck the fuck naked. Oh, yeah, yeah. She she has taken the opportunity of Sheridan looking away for like eight seconds to strip completely naked. And that reminds me of, uh, so yes, this is is a really hilarious sequence. Um, She strips naked. He's just staring at her like, why the fuck would you do this? What is going on? Um, Then Ivanova appears behind her. Yeah. Sheridan apparently has a look of surprise on his face as a holographic Ivanova appears behind this naked woman. Musante starts to turn around and look at Ivanova, so he distracts her with a kiss. This Yeah. And this then, is like, and then you they go buried the lead of the summary of yeah. what the scene is. I, I was trying to be efficient, okay. I just um, I want to point out that we have literally pivoted in the space of like 12 seconds from we just found the evidence to prove that our government was overthrown by a fascist to wacky naked hijinks. Yes. With with a fascist. Yes. Yeah. Uh and so and then Whoop. then Sheridan's like, just a moment, and goes behind the sliding glass door, which is definitely not soundproof, to you know, speak in hushed tones with Hollow Ivanova. And then he heads back out, takes a look at Musante, and says what must be the best line in this whole fucking show. Gee, I guess it's a little colder than I thought. <laughs> Let me go fix that. <laughs> so good. And Box Hitler's delivery of it is fantastic. It's, it's real dry. Yeah. And we, we also know that the two of them do not fuck because the next morning as she meets with Zach over breakfast, um, she's just in an awful mood and is like, gosh, your captain must be really good at negotiating with the unions because I've never seen somebody say no in so many ways to a simple proposition. Uh. It's the most, it's, it's, it's fucking, it's wild. I, well, we can go on to that. Let's finish our summary. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, there's a bunch of plot left. 
Um, so Ivanova meets with Marcus at the White Star, uh, and they jet off to find some first ones. When they arrive, they find nothing uh, and decide to wait. Um, the two then snark at each other in a way that launched a thousand ships. When the sensors beep and a ship appears, the, the exact same ship that we last saw in Mind War when Catherine Sakai encountered it, but it has better CGI now. Yep. They make contact, explain the situation, and request aid against the shadows. The first ones, um, known as the walkers, apparently, uh, seem unenthusiastic and reply, Zog, before moving away. Ivanova decides on an unconventional tactic. She reopens the comm line and says that, gosh, they really didn't need these first ones help anyway because the Vorlons are just so cool. And like the Vorlons said that these guys just were dragging the last time. And why would they need anybody else's help when they've got the Vorlons? Um, which really she pissed- literally basically says, oh, yeah, we carried you last time. Get good scrubs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to just interrupt what, very briefly to point out that in the notes, Justin describes these as bionicle looking motherfuckers, or maybe it was in our chat and it's super accurate. I Googled, I didn't know what these They're are. They're a bionicle mask. I had to Google what a bionicle was because I missed that window because I'm old. Uh, but yes, you, you shine a flashlight through a bionicle and you have exactly what these motherfuckers look like. There's no way that the CGI designer did not have like a bionicle on his desk. And he was like, all right. And then just like starts tr- drawing the bionicle with his, you know, into, into his. He's might have preceded bionicles. Yeah. Ivanova's tactic works. First, first, the first ones um, respond with what is clearly in their language um, fucking Vorlons eat shit and die. And then finally agree to help. Um, when it is time, the. Alliance of Light are supposed to come to this place and call their name and they will be there. And then they vanish. Back on the station, we find out that the communication Ivanova recorded of Clark has been uh, released to ISN and that the Senate have opened an investigation into its authenticity. Musante has been recalled back to Earth, presumably to spread conspiracy theories on cable TV or run for a house seat in Georgia. (laughs) Uh, Sheridan tells Ivanova that the whole thing is a mess at the moment, but at least the truth is out in the open now. Oh, buddy. We've also had a couple of running side plots throughout all of this that don't quite merit full B-plot status, but are are pretty self-contained. The first fellow is Jakar, who is frustrated by his current situation on the station and is looking for ways to help uh, and, and senses that something is afoot. Delenn gives him the brush off, as does Garibaldi, and he vents to the latter. Jakar feels like not only have the Centauri removed his power and his title, they've they've removed the respect that others on the station hold for him. At the end of the episode, he approaches Garibaldi again, waking him up in the middle of the night with a new idea of how he can help. He gives Garibaldi the Book of Jaquan to read. Of course, first Garibaldi has to learn to read Narn, because there's no translation available. Our second B-plot follows Zach Allen, who continues to be out of his depth in Nightwatch. He's also cottoned on that there's something going on with the command staff. Musante designates him as her tour guide and informant. 
uh, around the station and hosts a super fash uh, night watch meeting where Zach and others are visibly uncomfortable, but apparently not uncomfortable enough to leave, um, especially since it sounds like doing so at this point would probably get them thrown in jail. He also tries to convince Garibaldi to let him in on whatever's going on. But Garibaldi is pissed at Zach for being part of the Night Watch and for revealing info to Masante, especially since Garibaldi's last second in command literally shot him in the back. And our, he, he's finding it hard to trust again. Finally, Zach escorts Musante off the station, where she promises to find and punish whoever released the information about Clark. And that's the episode. Yeah, it's, it's a wild ride. Is, yeah, it's a wild ride. This episode is all over the place. It's not. I mean, a roller coaster doesn't even begin to describe it. It's it's a tur- it's a tilt a whirl. Yeah, it's a, it's a tonal <laughs> tilt a whirl. Do we want to talk about Musante first? Yeah, let's get yeah. this nutbag. Yeah, she's terrifying. Uh, I first of all, like, yeah, she is terrifying. She is the she is the embodiment of every like well quaffed, uh, blonde anchor like or, or like talking head on conservative news. Yeah, like, and and this is this is the first one that we see of that archetype, but not the last. No, no, we'll get one a little later in the season. You just absolutely nailed the description of her. And it's crazy how prescient this character is to modern politics. It's bananas. Almost uncomfortably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not like an archetype that we really have quite, like, that we would get quite yet. Because this is still, like, the, the this is still, like, the birth of, like, cable news in its modern form yeah yeah um but i i do think that it is like it's an archetype that is aged very well especially like the sort of like girl boss angle she has i i think it goes to show how much of the modern conservative media playbook is and is really out of uh it's literal fascism. Yeah. Like, yeah, we have like a that, I mean, we have a, a comical depiction of fascism on this TV show, and it looks like a pale version of what the Republican Party is doing right now. Yeah, and I guess it and I guess it got blasted for being like you know too over the top, and it's like oh oh no no. Jameis in his uh, comments for this episode uh, talks a lot about the big lie which is a famous uh, Hitler quote from Mein Kampf specifically, that the it is easier for people to believe a big lie than it is to swallow a little one. Oof. And with his, it, his is rooted in anti-Semitism and fascism. And this one is just a lot of things of, we're just, we don't have homeless people on earth. We are going to redefine homelessness so that, you know, Anybody who's homeless is doing so voluntarily. Anybody can have a house or a job. Anybody can have a home or a job. And if you don't, obviously you're mentally ill. And we have correction centers for that now. And the and we're screening it out at a young age, too. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of stuff that have given us a, a real fast track to how quickly things have devolved on earth in the past year and yeah. and sheridan even says to her like when did all of this happen 
And her response is when we rewrote the dictionary. Yeah, she has these moments of being very transparent about what she's doing. Oh, and then yeah. she flips back into like PR speak mode. And uh, the the thing where she's like determined to seduce Sheridan is also like I feel like it's so nefarious because it's like she's she's figured out what she thinks is a easy way to prey on him. That like I mean, she does that with all the characters she interacts oh, yeah. with. Really, like she just she finds a weak she finds a weakness they can exploit. Like it's like for Alan, it's being a good little soldier, you know, for and she thinks she probably thinks that she's probably fallen into the trap that everyone else on Earth has with Sheridan. Of They look at his jacket. They look at his biography. Oh, he's a widower. <laughs> yeah. We don't see him in any relationships. He's probably lonely as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Probably hasn't gotten any in a while. He'll totally yeah. just jump at this. Uh, th- this episode has a lot of like little scenes and bits that I I gloss over that I really like. Like in the scene where Shakar is talking to Delenn, like he's figured out like half at least of what the Rangers are, and mm-hmm. she's trying to avoid him. And I I love that she's just like walking casually through the like market stalls kind of casually browsing while trying to like avoid Jakar but not make it clear that he's that she's avoiding Jakar and it's it's a nice little scene yeah I like that one especially especially like her you know kind of like holding up the piece of jewelry against herself and then setting it back down and then moving on to the next stall and like then buying a piece of fruit it's a nice little casual Delenn moment I also like how manic he is when he gives Garibaldi the Book of Jaquan. Like, that whole scene is really funny, but also, like, you can tell he's... It has the energy of, like, someone who maybe hasn't slept in a day or two and has, has like, this banana pants idea and, you know, like, shows up on Garibaldi's doorstep with the Book of Jaquan. But I can picture it in my head, the way he, like, hands the book to Garibaldi and then, like, gives it a pat, like, be good, and then, like, hands it over to Garibaldi <laughs> is just, it's perfect. It's so good. Should we move on to to uh, Himbo Corner with our host, uh, Professor Professor Justin? Yeah, so, the, so hi, I, I'm Justin, a professor in Himbology. Um, you do not get doctorates in Himbo studies. <laughs> that would uh so so this is like this is the first episode that we get like this is our first reappearance of Marcus after um uh Matter of Honor, which uh God bless that he didn't become like a Keffer and just appear in like two scenes and disappear. But yeah, no, we get a lot we get a lot of like we get he gets to be a little bit more of a, a fleshed out character in this episode. And it's fun because it's with a Vodafa. Um oh, yeah. and, like, the things that the things that we can establish about Marcus so far is that he is very pretty and that he is very nice. He's also like he he he's very kind, which is great as well. He's a good boy. Yeah, he is. And so that that is why like he is a clever person, but he's not particularly like he is not the the science officer here on Babylon 5. He so I'm putting under he is the emotion he is emotionally intelligent. He is a hunk and he is very nice. 
So I am. I, we are putting him under the classification of show himbo, and I think <laughs> the, the the best part of this though is that he gets paired with Avadova, who is mean. She is just mean to him, and that's good shit there. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it's not because like she's like she wants to be mean to Marcus specifically. It is because she is being defensive. Like she is like they are on a bridge with a bunch of Minbari. One of them does not speak Minbari, so they don't really have a lot of options to talk of, of talking to each other. And like Marcus recognizes that Ivanova is not used to being like sitting still and doing nothing as and like as they're waiting there. One could very easily read into the scene that, you know, it's been two months pro- about or probably like two or three months since the incident with Talia. And you could very easily like suppose from the narrative that Ivanova has just been throwing herself into her work and that she hasn't given herself personal time. She hasn't taken off time. She doesn't know what to do when she isn't moving. And Marcus sees that and tries to reach out and, and Ivanova just sort of snaps back and that's just, it's a really good scene between them. And, um, God, it's so nice to see like ladies being mean to himbos. <laughs> it's it's good shit there. It's good shit. Uh, Contrast that, however, with Alan, who some people in this podcast have tried to like nominate for himbo status, and I have rejected. Uh, please state your case. He's sort of there. He's he's not because he's not a hunk, and like that, that's the thing is like he doesn't have to be. You don't have to be, like, super muscly to be a himbo, but you have to be, like, pretty and hunky. And Zack, I don't think, is either of those. We have, we have Zack, who is, we're going to say, we're, for, for scientific purposes, is not a himbo. Okay, noted. <laughs> um, and Lucente. Lucente is mean to him, but she is being cruel. And that is because and, and we don't like, and that is that is a, a difference there. Also, we just, we don't like to see... Our himbos need to stay away from fascists. Fascism's not sexy. No, it is not. Um, I, I believe we can make that a show position, that yes. fascism is not sexy. Yes. Though I will also add that there is a line in this show that um, Ivanova, we'll say, slut shames Musante. And I'm like, even fascists we do not deserve to get slut shamed. Yeah. So I think you're reading it. So the line is that... Um, I, you, it looks like you're about to go where everyone's gone before. Yeah. So I never read it as the kind of assumption that everybody's been there with Misante. Um, I've always read it as like, well, you're about to have an awkward encounter. Oh, no, man. I totally read it the way Justin <laughs> No, did. no. I read... Yeah, no. I read that entirely as... Interesting. You, every man has been there before. Yeah. I read it as, like, this is a woman who uses her body in a manipulative way, and you're just the latest victim, which may be, in and of itself, like, a patriarchal... I don't know. Like, that may be a misogynistic interpretation of the line, but I guarantee you that that's how a JMS wrote it. <laughs> Like, yeah, it may be my own sort of internal misogyny or whatever you want to call it, interpreting it that way. But I'm pretty confident that whether or not that's that's the case, uh, I'm pretty confident that that's what JMS meant when he wrote it. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah. It's, it's funny, though, because I've always interpreted it differently. 
I think that makes you a better person than than the two of us. Because I, I hit that the line in the note where you were like, we do not slut shame even if fascists. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then I was like, oh, wait, you could read that line in a different way. Huh. Yeah, I it never occurred to me to read that any other way. Yeah, no, that was that, that was like I, I think like like that was one of the uh, we did a we did a watch party for that at all. I think our entire reaction was, "Ooh, that line has not aged well." Yeah, maybe maybe it's an artifact of the fact that I like first watched these when I was pretty young, and my and my like interpretation at that point was definitely like, you know, you're about to have an awkward intimate encounter. Marcus makes a joke about the French. Oh, that joke is it's so good. It's, it's the um, when when Ivanova says, "At least we know that they they understand our language. They're just not willing to speak it." And Marcus is just like, "Oh, so they're French?" <laughs> and it's like, yes, because the because the English and French will be salty bitches from now till the twenty third century. Uh, it's I so love good. How, I love that. Like, he's not even actually British. He's from like some random ass colony. He's from like a Drazi colony or something like that. Well, like, or like I think he's from like he, he's from a like he's from a colony. Like he lived on a, like a mining colony. Yeah. Before he joined the Rangers, but he's not even British. Like he's not from <laughs> Earth. He's of like random British descent, but he still he's still got uh, the salt about the is French. still so pure that he's still gonna make sh- make shitty jokes about the French. Uh. I had I had a couple of things that I think will probably be fairly short that I noticed. Okay. Um, there's a piece of set dressing I really like is that every time we see Sheridan's quarters, uh, we consistently see a giant bowl of oranges. That's good. That's good. Nice. Which is good. I found it interesting that Misante says that the Senate sent her. That I would have expected to have been Clark. You know, in the relationship between Clark and the Senate. It feels less like the Senate would be sending her. Yeah. The other and the the last thing I swear. So when when Ivanova is in the machine, what she sees are shadow eyes, as as indicated by the you know opening sequence for the season. And Draw makes a comment that a normal human would not have been able to do what she did, potentially meaning break away from. The shadows, or potentially meeting, pulling up the Clark communique. So it's it's probably good that Ivanova did this rather than Sheridan, because it seems like her kind of latent telepathic abilities potentially gave her a leg up here. So yeah, you know, that seems like it was actually useful for once. Yep, and that's that's it. I, I swear. I, I do have a note for um, it's not really it's sort of a guest actor. The actor who voices the Bionicle head uh, also voiced uh, Kosh. Interesting. They just fiddled around the modulation and stuff to because they wanted to. They wanted to have the all the first ones have similar sounds. Interesting. That makes sense. Oh, the the last thing I've got in the bits of Bob's here is that um, JMS speaks says that one credit is about one GBP at least um, at the time of filming. So we can use that to benchmark the currency. Finally, yeah, it's like because they because they because he says like yeah the 50, 50 credit a week bump is like fifty pounds a week, which considerable. Yeah, especially yeah, that in been, 96, 97. Yeah, that would have been like yeah. two bucks. So yeah, that would have been like one hundred twenty bucks a week or something like one hundred ten bucks a yeah. week. 
nothing to sniff at. Especially yeah. since it's it, it seems like cost of living on the station is pretty high based on the fact that they have to import so much stuff. I'll save it. I have questions, but we we'll save that for the uh, <laughs> the eggs and bacon episode. <laughs> Manager Benetsky, I want to thank you for this ridiculous episode. Uh, it's a good one. It's just all over the fucking place. Agreed. It's funny because it's it's both kind of like a wham episode and it's both and it's a humor episode. Yeah. yeah. Somehow both. So this is this is we're getting close to the point of no return here to give our listeners an update on the schedule. Um, we're going to be covering next episode. Our next episode, we're going to be covering uh, Passing Through Gethsemane, which is episode four. That's just, we all decided that should be a standalone episode. Then in two episodes from now, we're going to be doing Dust to Dust and Exogenesis. And then we're going to be reaching the big midway point of the series, which is going to be Messages from Earth, Point of No Return, Severed Dreams, and Ceremonies of Light and Dark. So next time we're going to be Passing Through Gethsemane, and then we're going to be going through Hell. Until next time, y'all. Be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.